Section thirteen of Chimes from a Jester's Bells by Robert J. Burdett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Deborah Lynn. Chimes from a Jester's Bells by Robert J. Burdett. Section thirteen. Stories and Sketches. Eleven. A Neighborly Neighborhood. The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant unto the lender. Proverbs 22.7 Dearly beloved, true it is that the words of the wise are as goads, but in using them it is well for us to be sure that we have hold of the whip-handle. Captain Bunsby added a footnote to human wisdom when he said, The bearings of this observation lays in the application on it. True it is that the rich ruleth over the poor, that it takes a millionaire to get into the United States Senate, and whoso runneth therefore must open a barrel. There is a law that comes cheap, and the end thereof is the penitentiary, and there is another law that comes high, and the progress thereof is postponement, and adjournment, and appeal, and temporary stay of proceedings, and chronic stay of judgment, and perpetual stay of execution, and new trials, and changes of venue, and the end of it never has been reached. But these things are beyond the grasp of a man on a salary. A cattle king who buyeth fifty thousand acres of grazing lands, calmly fenceth in a hundred and seventy-five thousand acres with barbed wire, and then grazeth his herds outside the fence, and nobody knoweth the difference, because, say they, he owneth all the land from Jericho to Ashdod of the Philistines, and who may say where the reservation line begins. But a poor man who buys a building lot with a fifty-foot front has it measured for him with a Gunther's rule, with a graduated straight edge and protractor measuring the thousandth part of an inch, and it is graven with a pen of iron on the surveyor's granite corner. And woe is he if his fence fall not within his line. Verily his neighbor, who loveth no man as he loveth his land, will make it warm for him if he encroach by a hair's breadth. The man about town looketh upon the wine when it is red and costly, and saith to the sergeant, You know me, Johnny. And the sergeant saith, He is good for it, and sendeth him home in a hack. But the roundsman bringeth in a plebeian who hath a daily job on the dock, and straightway they lock him up, and he getteth ten days. The visiting merchant painteth the town red, and the magistrate before whom he is brought saith, You ought to be ashamed of yourself, and sendeth him home to blush unseen. But his porter cometh to town, and assumeth a jag, and the same magistrate saith, You ought to be hanged, and chaineth him upon the stone-pile. Verily wealth is a reassuring comforting encumbrance. The easiest pew in the synagogue, the front seats at the ball-game, the high place on the reviewing-stand, are the spoil of the rich. When the rich man lifteth up his head in the hack, he scorneth the wheel and its rider. With only the exception of the messenger-boy and the servant-girl, the rich ruleth over the poor. As for her, she ruleth the entire ranch with a rod of red-hot iron, and for him he calleth no man boss, and time grovels at his feet asleep. But for the rest of us we are slaves. Quote, slaves to a horde of petty tyrants, feudal despots, lords rich in some dozen paltry villages, strong in some hundred spearmen, only great in that strange spell a g n a i g h m e name 
End quote. But is it always true that the borrower is servant to the lender? It was doubtless so in the time of Solomon, and in a general way it is true now. But a brighter day has dawned upon the world of borrowers since Solomon owned everything in sight. The coney are a feeble folk, but by building their houses in the rock they make strong their habitation, and the walking delegate today dictates terms to the millionaire that would have cost him his head had he whispered them into the crevice of a stone wall in the days of Hiram and Solomon. There isn't a man in the world today, outside of undiscovered Africa, who can say, Off with his head! without giving a reason for it, unless he wears a pasteboard crown and carries a scepter which belongs to the property man. Times change, and we change with them. Solomon wrote as a rich lender who had his whole kingdom on a cut-throat mortgage, and thus held the borrower where the hair was short, although the time was long. But all signs fail when you haven't the countersign, and it is a long lane that has no turning, and the lane has turned. When I was a boy in the halls of my father's, we had two halls, front and back, in the halls of my father's then. I had but one father, it is true, but as he was in no wise a singular man, I put him in the plural. In that happy, carefree time, I remember a neighbor who moved out to Illinois shortly after us, and located a claim alongside our own peaceful domain, where we abode under our own morning-glory vines and fig-tree, where children clustered like olive plants round about the table three times a day, and fluttered and swarmed like barn swallows all over the place the rest of the time. The new neighbor came, on the morning of his arrival, to borrow a hatchet. Theirs was nailed up in one of their boxes, he said, and they wanted to unpack their things. That was all right, but I wondered greatly how they packed that hatchet. I had an idea that one of the boys must have got into the last box and nailed the lid on from the inside. However, I was mistaken. That wasn't the way of it at all. My brother John, to whom I confided my theory, said I might have known better, but I didn't. So we watched the new neighbors unpacking their things all that day with the most curious interest. Every time they opened a new box, expecting to see the boy with the hatchet crawl out, a little rumpled and compressed by the long journey from Ohio, but with that certain air of newness that old things long packed are apt to have. I was sorely disappointed when the last box was emptied and no boy seemed to be missed. The Hadbins, the man's name was Oe Hadbin, were neighborly people. Mother said she thought we should like them, but then her gentle nature always thought we should like anybody. Of course, they had no time for cooking the first day, so they ate with us. That was the Western idea in those days. Your house belonged to the new neighbor until he got settled. In that day, if anybody had to go hungry or sleep in the stable, it wasn't the people just off the steamboat or just unloaded from the creaking prairie schooner, for in those days railways were not. It was the old settler who put up with the makeshifts, and he, remembering how he had been welcomed and made comfortable in like manner, never complained, but rather acted as though the newcomer was conferring a favor upon him by accepting his hospitality. But the next day, after the Hadbins were thoroughly shaken down and settled into place, they sent over and borrowed all the bread we had in the house. And Mother, saying that something had evidently gone wrong with them, sent all the butter we had with it. I am not sure that the children rejoiced in this belated opportunity of doing good. As I chewed dry bread at supper that night, I ruefully thought of the Hadbins spreading our good butter upon our soft bread thick as mortar and I asked my blessing backward, 
for I hated dry bread. Do yet, although I know it is good for me. I hate crust, too, always did. My mother used to chide me for sneaking my crusts out of sight without eating them. She said, Ah, my boy, I am afraid you will want those good bread crusts one of these days. I said, So was I. That was why I didn't eat them at the time, because if I did, then when I wanted them, they would be gone. And when any well-meaning guest told me she thought the crust was the best part of the bread, I always politely offered to let her have mine. To this day, people are sometimes surprised when they remove my plate to see a little circle of crusts hit around under its edge. I maintain that bread crust is not edible, that it is not nutritious, that it should no more be eaten by human beings than the rind of an orange. When I see a man eat bread crust willingly, without compulsion, I harbor dark suspicions of him. I believe him to be fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils, a designing and deceitful man. The next morning one of the children came over to borrow the scythe. It was late in November. There wasn't a thing in all Peoria County to mow, and there never had been any grass on their reservation anyhow. I suppose now that they wanted the scythe to cut the bread with. The occasional study of the subject at intervals during all these years has evolved no better solution than that. We gave up the scythe and wondered. In the afternoon we saw two of the children coming home from Greg's with a tub and concluded that the Hadbins were extending their lines to the left and were reconnoitering all along their immediate front. This surmise was confirmed in the evening when Mr. Lloyd stopped in for a moment on his way to the store to say that neighbor Hadbin had borrowed all their lamps and he was going downtown to get some candles. What are candles? Oh, well, I don't know that I could tell you just exactly what they were. They are not anything. They were straight white things with a wick that we lit in the evening to see by. Something like gauze? Well, yes, dear, something like gauze. Something like it. The bill was about ten times stronger than the light. Well, the Hadbins grew more familiar as you became more intimate with them, and the better acquainted with them you were, the more you knew of them. It is that way with some people. Two or three days after the scythe transaction, Dick Hadbin came and borrowed Charlie's sled. We told him there wouldn't be any snow for nearly a month, but he said he could wait, and went away patiently dragging the sled through the dust. I began to be a little scared at this indication of communistic spirit, and father said he understood why they borrowed the scythe. It was to have it ready against next summer's haying. But my mother said we mustn't judge them before we knew them better, and went on to say what a sweet voice Mrs. Hadbin had. Why, when did you hear it? one of my sisters asked, and mother bent her face a little lower over her sewing. I can yet see the faint blush kindling on her cheeks as she confessed that she heard her asking Mrs. Kent for the loan of her quilting frame, and could she tell her where she could borrow some clothes props and a couple of flat irons? The shout of applause that went up saved her from acknowledging that her own department had honored the full requisition for flat irons and issued half rations of clothes props. The Hadbins were Baptists, and I suppose that is one reason why they raided my father's inheritance oftener than they did the borders of Edom and Philistia. They knew the duties and responsibilities of the diaconate. The first Sunday they came to church, Mr. Hadbin asked my father if he might sit in our pew until they could select one. Certainly, Brother Hadbin. And the deacon waved him into it as a prophet might gesture a nation into the promised land. And in filed Brother Hadbin, Sister Hadbin, Ellen Hadbin, 
George had been, Dick had been, Gad had been, Cynthia had been, and Jane Growl had been's maidservant, and the had been twins. They settled in our pew and spread out over the adjoining sections of the court of the Gentiles. We scattered as sheep without a shepherd that Sunday, and afterward camped out on an abandoned claim in the Amen corner that nobody would think of borrowing. The next day passed quietly, and none of our outposts were driven in. But the day after that, George and Gad had been came to borrow our dog to go hunting with. We loaned the dog rather sorrowfully, for we were very fond of him. But mother said, "You foolish boys! Old Zack will come back himself." That sounded reasonable, but as I am relating a matter of history, I cannot conscientiously suppress any part of the truth. Zachary Taylor never returned. He came home with the Hadbin boys all right. I forgot to mention that they got about a mile out of town before it occurred to them they had forgotten to borrow a gun, and one of them came back and got it. We saw him coming and threw the powder flask over the fence and said we hadn't any. So they borrowed powder and shot of Walter Colburn, but never restored himself to us. Old Zack reported at the fence sometimes, and looked in at us so wistfully that it made our hearts ache. He would stick his head in between the boards to be petted, but he seemed to realize that he had been borrowed and went back to stay with the rest of our things until he should be formally returned. Once Mrs. Hadbin came in. And in one of the softest, sweetest, coaxiest voices you ever heard, begged mother to save all the bones for the dog. She said they used theirs for making soap. Not long after that, they heard a mouse in their pantry one night, and came over next morning to borrow the cat. Now you know a cat does not belong to a family, but to the house. The cat does not move when the family moves; it stays where it lives. But that cat knew from the moment Cynthia had been went away with it wrapped up in her apron, that it was a borrowed cat, and it never came back to our ranch. In the silence of the night, once in a while, we could hear Cleopatra. He was really a Mark Antony cat, but my sisters named him Cleopatra when he was little, and he never grew up to his name. Singing on the had been woodshed in plaintive minor strains, as though his heart was breaking with nostalgia. He was always inclined to nostalgia, and even when he was quite young, he would make Rome howl if he was locked out of the kitchen nights. But he returned to the home of his childhood no more. He was borrowed. In all the world of borrowed things, I don't believe anything can be so completely lost, however, as a borrowed book. Now, if I should drop a book overboard far out at sea, or if I should let it fall into the crater of Vesuvius. Or if some sudden tornado should come along and blow it off the earth before my astonished eyes, I am not sure that I would be in too great haste to replace it. I think I would wait, in the faint hope that maybe somehow or other, some way or other, some time or other, it might come back from the realms of space. It might return from the drifting smoke. The sea might yield it up. But when a man comes along and borrows a book. Then I go downtown and buy another copy for myself if I want to read it again. That book is gone, isn't it? Cries of yes, yes, and that's so. So things ran on, or rather ran off, and week by week our little home began to look more desolate as one thing after another went into the maelstrom, until finally Mr. Hadbin, who seldom did any borrowing in person, struck my father for his autograph on a little thirty-day note for a trifling amount. Father yielded. 
The note fell due, and the owner of the borrowed name had to pay it himself. "'Don't worry Mr. Hadbin about it,' my mother pleaded gently. "'He'll pay you sometime.' "'That's just when he will,' my father replied grimly. "'I haven't said a word to him. He's enough of a business man to know how these things go.' That evening Mr. Hadbin called. He was very angry. "'Deacon,' he said, "'I understand that you took up that note yourself today.' "'Yes,' father said he did. He didn't want it to go to protest, so he took it up. And Mr. Hadbin could pay him when times were a little easier, and—' But Mr. Hadbin waved his hand with a gesture at once injured and sorrowful. "'Well,' he said, "'I would never have believed it of you. Never. When I heard it, I said it wasn't so, but—' His utterance faltered, and he was gone. Mad was no name for what he was. He told people he had never been so deceived, never been treated so in all his life. He said he had heard of mean men in Ohio, but he had to come to Illinois to find them, and a brother in the church, too. When he thought of that, he could stand it no longer. He left the Baptist church after vainly trying to get a rebate on our pew-rent for the time he hadn't occupied the pew, and went right off and joined the Children of Light, a new sect that was running a sort of faith-cure fake on commission in a riverside cooper shop. The week after that the Hadbins moved. The day they went away they sent us word that they would be beholden to us for nothing, so they sent back all our old things. They sent us, via the division fence, three tubs belonging to Greg, all of Lloyd's lamps except the parlor camp-fiend lamp, which had exploded when they set it on the kitchen stove, Knowlton's wheelbarrow, Weston's buggy harness, Mrs. Phillips's preserving kettle, John Shepherd's plough, Mrs. Tapping's quilting frames, and a great variety of things belonging to everybody in the neighborhood except ourselves. We announced a reception. The neighbors came in, identified their property, and took it away, and we saw our own things and the Hadbins no more. Since then, often I have thought that when poor Richard wrote, he that goes a-borrowing goes a-sorrowing. He must have meant that one fellow went a-borrowing, and the other fellow went a-sorrowing. End of section 13